or forever hold your peace. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Judges, Old Testament book of Judges, and we we are powering through this much more quickly than we do New Testament books of the Bible when we tend to gear down and, and really dig in and go kind of a paragraph at a time or a couple of paragraphs at a time, but in Judges, we're, uh, we're kind of hitting a judge at a time, though today is an interesting exception. And so uh, it's our task this morning to, to make it through 57 verses of Judges chapter 9. Yeah. So I hope you brought lunch with you and uh, there will be no potty breaks or anything like that. I, I have been told that I'm long-winded and that's with a short verse, a short, short passage. So with, with uh, 57 verses, we'll see how it goes. But So that being said, we better ask the Lord's help today. Lord, we come to you this morning and uh, rejoice, rejoice that we can know you. Lord, we rejoice that you have made it so that we can be your children because of what Jesus has done, that all of our flaws, all of our faults, all of our guilt, our depravity, that uh, you offer us forgiveness for those things. You offer us healing, uh, reconciliation with yourself, redemption. Um, Lord, those are big words, and they mean a lot to us. They mean a lot to me, and I worship you for the fact that you offer salvation in Jesus. And this morning, as we turn to your word and we look at this Old Testament book of Judges, and we look at Abimelech and Shechem and all that was going on there, Lord, we don't want to uh, get bogged down in the history. The history is crucial, and uh, and I, I want to uh, pay good attention to the history, but I want to see you in this. And so that's my prayer this morning. Lord, that you would work by your spirit through the proclamation of your word this morning, that we would see you as greater than we saw you when we walked in here this morning. Not because you have changed, but because we've seen more clearly. Lord, I pray that you would work by your spirit and do your will in our hearts this morning. I pray that you would draw many to yourself, and I pray that you would draw all of our hearts into worship of you because of your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in... Judges chapter nine, and um, this this book of uh, or this this chapter in this book is a little bit different than than those around it. Uh, there are a couple of distinctions uh, between chapter nine and uh, and chapters eight and ten and, and those around it. Uh, first of all, is the fact that um, there is no judge raised up in chapter nine. The other chapters are about judges. We looked at Gideon the last few chapters, right? And we're going to look at Jephthah and Tola and Jair and some others that will come and there'll be Samson and, right? Those were judges who were raised up. And when we look in chapter nine, we see that there is not a judge raised up. So that's, that's a distinction. And, and uh, we're going to see what that looks like. Second of all, um, the oppression in the other books arose, came about and was brought in to Israel by the nations surrounding Right, We just dealt with the Midianites and the Amalekites when we looked at Gideon, and they were an invading force that caused the problem. The same, same thing is going to be true in the future. And in this chapter, it's different. The problem arises from within. The problem is from within Israel. So that's another interesting distinction. And as we go through this, I want us to pay special attention to what we, uh, how often we hear about God. I said it's 57 verses. That's, that's, that's a lot of verses, right? And you would expect to hear a lot about the Lord, but we won't hear all that much about Him. And so I want us to keep an eye on when we hear about the Lord and what we hear about the Lord in this chapter so that we can kind of get a feel for what's going on. So uh, that's, that's kind of an introduction to, to Judges chapter 9. 
And uh, Judges chapter 9 is about this son of Gideon, right? We looked at Gideon the last few weeks, and Gideon was a judge, and he, um, remember the amazing things that God used him to do in his, with his little band of 300, and all the things that God accomplished and did miraculously through him, and, and all of that, and, uh, and Gideon is a very interesting study because of the amazing things that he does, and then some of the things that he does that are much less than amazing, and, and, and uh, not very impressive, and certainly not very godly, and so Gideon is kind of a mixed character, and he, he ends his life uh, with 70 sons, Remember, towards the end of his life, after they had, uh, they had conquered the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people wanted to set him up as king. You know, Gideon, be our king. You're, you're great at this stuff. You should just do it all the time. And, and Gideon said, no, I'm, I'm not going to be your king. Uh, the Lord will rule over you. Uh, but give me lots of money. That'd be great. And then, by, by the way, he has 70 sons, which is not a normal thing for an average run-of-the-mill guy to have 70 sons, right? He's, he's, he's apparently taken on multiple multiple wives he's had a lot of children he's 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 functioning essentially as a, as a king or he's living as a king and so he has these 70 sons right and then the the chapter 8 ends with with him actually even slipping into idolatry with this ephod and stuff like that and the people around him slipping into idolatry and then after he passes away the nation just just goes right over the edge into idolatry into baal worship and that's how chapter 8 ends, and it kind of ends on a whimper. And, uh, and so that's, that's what's going on in the nation of Israel at the time. That's what's happening. And, and so that introduces us to, uh, to where we are today in chapter 9, looking at the life of, of Abimelech. And first of all, we're going to look at uh, Abimelech's plan. And with the other judges, we see that God had a plan, and God had a plan to raise up a judge. And here with Abimelech, it's different. Abimelech comes with a plan. And, and this is what his plan is. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. Again, this is Judges chapter 9. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And so uh, we see quite a few things going on. We see, first of all, why is Gideon referred to as Jerubbaal? That's his, that's his Canaanite name, Jerubbaal. You see the last four letters there, Baal? That's the, that's the Canaanite god. So he had a name and a reference, and by this time he's referred to exclusively by that name, by his Canaanite name, Jerubbaal. And so he... he uh, you kind of get a picture, an idea of what's going on in the culture. That it's shifted enough that he no longer goes by Gideon. That people don't know him as Gideon anymore. They know him as Jerubbaal. And so Abimelech comes forward and he says, hey, I want to be king. Well, I want us to notice that Israel has never had a king to this point. There has not been a king. There's not been a need for a king. And when the people approached Gideon in the chapter before and said, Gideon, you're really a powerful, uh, mighty leader. Why don't you be our king? He said, no, I won't be your king. The Lord will be your king. But his son, Abimelech, whose name means my father is king, he comes in and he says, hey, I have a plan for kingship of how I can become king in the nation of Israel. And so... uh, so he comes forward with this plan. This is Abimelech's plan, right? And Abimelech wasn't even the most qualified, let's say, of Gideon's sons to be king. He was, he was the son of his 
concubine who lived in a different place from where Gideon lived. Gideon lived in Ophrah, and Abimelech grew up with his mom in Shechem, which is a Canaanite city. And so he's definitely not the most qualified of the sons to become king. And yet, nevertheless, here he is making his bid for kingship. And so that's, that's his kingship proposed. That's his idea. He's the one who comes forward with this proposal that he wants to be king. Kingship proposed. Well, then we continue on reading and we have a kingship realized. Verses 3 through 6. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said... He's our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berit, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together in all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. And so we have his kingship realized. And what a beginning. What a beginning to his, to his kingship. First of all, they agree. The people of Abimelech, or the people of Shechem agree that they want to make Abimelech the king. After all, he's our brother, right? He's our relative. And it would be good to have a relative. You know, maybe we could, we'd have special favor from him. He, he would be our leader. And so... They take money from the coffers of the local idol temple, Baal Barith, and, uh, and they, uh, they take money from there and they give him money so that he can go and hire some mercenaries. That's always a good way to start a, your, your reign as king, right? To hire mercenaries. And that's what he's done. So he's, he's taken money from uh, an, an idol's temple and he's hired mercenary and gone to do that. And um, the first thing that he has to do to establish his claim of, of validity or of eligibility for the throne is take out the opponents take out his brothers and political opponents. And so he decides to do that. And he goes to their town and he captures them and he executes them, all of them, on one stone. He kills them all. Except for the one, Jotham. Jotham the youngest, and he hides himself. And you see that's a theme quite a bit in the, uh, in the Bible, that the, somehow the youngest gets away. He's able to hide and, and get away. And Jotham here hides and he gets away, but, but uh, Bimelech and his men, they, they round up the rest of the sons, the rest of the brothers, and they execute them. These are political rivals after all, and, and they need to be taken care of. And so this is how Abimelech, this new king who's made this proposal, that's how he's going to legitimize his, his throne, his, his reign, is by killing everybody who disagrees with him. And so that's what he does. He's ruthless. And, uh, and it seems from the text, as you read it, it kind of seems like Shechem was kind of going along with this. It wasn't like they were totally surprised that here Abimelech went and hired a bunch of mercenaries. I wonder what he did that for. And then went and killed all of his political rivals. Why, why would he do that? No, you have the idea as you're reading through it that Shechem was right there, right there on board and they were funding his assassinations. And so that's his kingship realized and what a kingship it's going to be. Well, we see in the next few verses a kingship cursed a kingship cursed. Stay with me on this. 7 through 21, we're going to read. And this is a fable. You don't see a lot of fables in, uh, in the Bible. And this is the clearest example of one. Let's go ahead and read it. And this is uh, 7 through 21. When it was told to Jotham that Abimelech had been made king, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, 
Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal in his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not... Let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Millo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Millo and devour Abimelech. Jotham ran away and fled and went to Bear and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So he tells this fable, and it's a pretty long and drawn out fable, and it's a curse. He intends it to be a curse upon the people. He knows very well that Shechem has not acted in good favor in putting Abimelech in as king. He knows very well uh, the treachery that's gone on. He barely escaped with his own life. Here Gideon, Jerubbaal, was the judge, the deliverer of the people. And they're the direct beneficiaries of the prophet, the benefit that he brought, the peace that he brought, the freedom from shackles, the freedom from fear of the Midianites and the Amalekites. And this is how they decide they're going to treat Gideon and his family, is by killing them. And so you have him issuing this curse, telling this fable, and in it is a very thinly veiled curse that he pronounces upon them. So you have a, a kingship cursed, and, and the curse is basically Shechem, the leaders of Shechem, will destroy Bimelech. Bimelech will destroy Shechem, vice versa. But that's what's going to happen is they're going to mutually destroy one another and take each other out. That's his curse. That's his wish upon them for the way they have treated his family. So that's Abimelech's plan. And we see it start to come to fruition. And then we start to see some, some cursing happen because of it. What's going to happen? What's going to go forward with our story? Well, we move on to a city divided. So now you've got Shechem and Shechem is set up. And it's this Canaanite city with some, some Jewish, uh, some Israelite influence there, right? And that was, that was where Gideon's son Abimelech grew up, and that's where his concubine lived. And some other things have gone on at Shechem. Shechem is a pretty important city that occurs, appears quite a lot in the history of the Old Testament. Way back, if you remember the story, a very grisly story of what happened with uh, 
with uh, Jacob and his sons, and one of his daughters gets raped by uh, by by Shechem, and or Shechem's son. I guess it was him or it was Shechem's son. And uh, anyway, he he gets raped there, and so the the people go in. That's a long history. If you think historically, that's hundreds and hundreds of years ago. You already have the people of Israel having conflict, and what they do is they go in and they and they and they kill the men and and they raid the place, and it's a bad deal, right? Well, then hundreds of years later, when the people of Israel have come into the land and under the leadership of Joshua and they've conquered the land and, and, and all of that, then what do they do? They, they reconfirm the covenant. They recommit themselves to the covenant at the end of the book of Joshua, and they do so in the town of Shechem. And so this is a, this is a town that's been uh, in the news, as it were. It happens, uh, it occurs quite a lot in the Old Testament. Well, here we have Shechem in conflict. Right? They've just set up a king, Abimelech. He's their king, but we see that there is conflict there. Look at verses, uh, look, verses 22 through 25. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. And so what they do is they decide they're going to go into the business of highway robbery, and they're going to focus their attacks specifically on Abimelech's men, which would make sense if you want to make money, you go to the rich guy. Well, that's Abimelech. He's the, the king in this situation. So uh, this town that was, that was crucially uh, uh, central in setting him up as king, they actually turn against him, and they actually start robbing from him. And so they, they set up these bandits, and the bandits would lie in wait, and, and as Abimelech's men were coming by, probably with you know, cash or goods or whatever, they would jump them, take their stuff, and let them go. Well, of course, Abimelech ends up finding out about it. But we have a, an intense intense conflict that's that's arising what's impressive to me about this section what really sticks out to me is that uh throughout this chapter you will only see god referred to about five or six times within these 57 verses you you only hear a rare reference to god but you can see that he's at work very directly in what's going on throughout the text he may not be explicit on the scene in many places but he is always working, even by his direct hand. He sends a spirit, what's referred to here as an evil spirit, to disrupt the relationship between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. Anytime you see the Lord sending an evil spirit, it kind of makes you pause and question and wonder a little bit, right? Well, the idea of the evil spirit is obviously a messenger sent from God to accomplish some purpose. Well, this is, uh, this is uh, the, the word for spirit is ruach. That's the Hebrew word for spirit. And that's not in question. But what is, is the word ra'ah, which we've translated as evil. And some of your translations will say calamitous or harmful or disruptive. And that's because there are two basic ideas to this word ra'ah. One is the idea of moral evil, moral repugnancy, moral uh, uh, failure, right? That's, that's inherent in who they are. And that's, that's the idea of evil when we think of an evil person. He's a liar, he's a cheat, he's a murderer, he's a thief, and he kind of has this, this kind of moral character that he's like that. But the idea is also of calamity, disruptive, destructive, 
So the word ruach can refer, or excuse me, the word ra'ah can refer to that sometimes also. Where it's not that it's morally evil, it's disruptive. And so we might say that a severe storm, a tornado, for example, would be an evil. An evil tornado appeared. Well, was it evil? Was it like hunting people to kill? No, it's a storm, but it's very disruptive and it's causing destruction. And that's that's the use of the word ra'ah here. And so the, an evil spirit, a disruptive spirit to cause disunity between the king, Abimelech, and the people, Shechem, Shechem the ones who, who set him up. And so there's this disruption and it's directly caused by God. God is, is deliberately disrupting their communication, deliberately making them angry at one another, deliberately working on the scene. The point is that God intervenes here to cause dissension, to cause strife between the leadership and, uh, and the people. And so the Shechemites begin to work as highway robbers, and there becomes this major disagreement and uproar between the two. And so God is working there, and we see that Shechem is in conflict. Well, Shechem goes beyond just conflict and moves into open rebellion. Look at verse 26. 26 through 33. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, by the way, sometimes it's a lot of fun to be a preacher when you get to pronounce all kinds of names you have no idea how to pronounce. And I just get to do that in front of you guys, so just chuckle away, it's fine. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hemor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. And when Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Ebed and his relatives have come to Shechem and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So you have this rebellion starts. Gaal, son of Ebed, moves into town. He and his family, and they come and they set up shop, and people kind of like him. And he, he, he gains favor amongst the people, and he... Uh, he starts reviling and boasting about what he would do if he were king. If he were in charge of the people, this, this is what he would do. And he, here's what he would say to Abimelech. And he would call him out and he would challenge him. Come on, let's do it. And he, he picks a fight. And he's picking a fight with Abimelech, right? Well, there's an old guard in town. The old people who are still loyal to Abimelech. And the old guard in Shechem, and they're led by Zebul. They take steps to expose Gaal and his plan. And they're going to they're gonna let this be known so that Abimelech will, uh, will be able to attack and destroy and kill Gaal and Ebed, or Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his people. And so he's going to take care of them. So there's an open rebellion that rises. Okay? And so Shechem, uh, point C there, Shechem expels the insurgent. They're able to get rid of the guy. So looking at verse 34 through 41. So. Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. 
And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. And so they hatched this plan to set an ambush and, and there's a time that's going to work out for you, Abimelech, to come and attack these guys and drive them out. And so Zebul, who's kind of the, he's the, the old guard, he's loyal to Abimelech, he's in the city and they set up this whole, this whole uh, scheme where he's going to be able to attack them, ambush them, drive them out of the city and it works. And so all ends up driven out. And uh, so the city is freed, right? Okay, well, that sounds like it might actually kind of be the end of the story, Right? The, the insurgents been driven out. The guy who was causing all the problems has been driven out. Maybe they can go back to normal life. But they're not done. The story's not over. The Lord's not finished. And so here we have at the remainder of the chapter, we have the Lord's plan. And the Lord's plan is fuller and has more to it than we've seen so far. The first part of the Lord's plan is the city of Shechem needs to be destroyed. So the city of Shechem will be destroyed. And look what happens in verse 42 through 45. Remember, they've already driven out the rebellious element. They've driven out the ringleader. Gaal has been, has been driven out. He can't be there anymore. So why continue and attack the city? But verse 42, on the following day, the people went out into the field and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the field. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. And so here you have some, some severe retribution. You see that he's going beyond just removing the rebellious element, just driving the insurgent out. You see that he actually goes in and he actually destroys the entire city. He lays siege against it. He kills all of its people. Not only that, he tears the city down. He raised the city. He destroyed the city. He sowed it with salt so that it wouldn't be productive. There were also certain religious elements that were going on with that, so it would be kind of unclean or something like that. But, but he's, he's utterly destroying and wiping Shechem off the map. So Abimelech goes above and beyond, and he destroys the city. His father had done a similar thing with uh, Sukkot and with Penuel. And he does the same thing here with Shechem. So the city of Shechem is destroyed. And more than that, the citadel of Shechem is burned. Verses 46 through 49. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elberit. That's their God. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to, the, to Mount Zalman. He and all the people who were with him and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulders. And he said to the men who were with him, what you've seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed Abimelech. 
And they put it against a stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. So he goes beyond just destroying the city. Now he attacks specifically the leadership in a separate stronghold. He attacks them and, uh, and gets them all cornered into one place. And then he lights it on fire and burns it down around them and kills them all. A thousand people. This is a ruthless, merciless man. So the citadel of Shechem is burned. Jotham's curse has begun. Remember the fable? And he said, uh, he said if, if you haven't acted in good faith, then let fire come out from Abimelech and destroy Shechem and Beth Milo. And that's exactly what we've seen happen. The curse has begun. The curse has begun to be fulfilled. And we're going to see that uh, point C, the curse of Shechem will be fulfilled entirely. Verses 50 through 55, we're getting close to the end here. Then Abimelech, Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in and they went up to the roof of the tower. All right, sounds like I reread some similar verses earlier, right? It's, it's a little bit of deja vu. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they save me. A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. So after killing the people of the tower of Shechem, he goes on his campaign, and he goes to another town, Thebes, and he decides to do the same thing. He's rounding everybody up, drives them into this tower. No big deal. He knows what to do. He's done this before. His men have done this before. And here's where it takes a providential turn. He's done this before very successfully, not too long ago. But here, a certain nameless woman standing on the top of this tower. She grabs an upper millstone, pretty heavy piece of rock, drops it over the edge, lands right on his head, crushes his skull. And as he's passing out, he asks his, his servant to kill him lest he, you know, have the, uh, you know, bad reputation the displeasure as it were of being killed by a woman he doesn't want that and so he'd rather have his servant kill him so his servant runs him through and he dies so all the people hear of it and they scatter and so you have the curse being completed the curse brought brought to completion not only is shechem destroyed but now you have abimelech himself killed in the process and so jotham's curse his fable that he that he stated earlier has come to pass. And this is, this is kind of the conclusion of the passage. Look at the last few verses here. The last two. Verse 56. Thus, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 sons. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. And so you have God at work behind the scenes. As we've looked at this rather long story and it's been kind of involved, you don't see God mentioned a lot. But you see the story begin with a reference to what was intended, even though it doesn't say God intended it, but the conclusion is very clear. 
the conclusion is very clear. God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 sons. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. And so in the end, we see that actually God was at work the whole time. He was orchestrating events the whole time in order to accomplish his purpose. I said before that this chapter is very different than the chapters around it because there's not a judge. God doesn't raise up a judge. But as I was reading this and as I was agonizing over it and I was trying to figure out why it's here, why it fits in the way it does, what's the author mean, what does God mean? And I, I, I came to understand that God himself plays the role of judge in this, in this chapter. God himself plays the role of judge. The evil has, has arisen from within the nation of Israel. The problem is, is from within. The evil is from within. And God himself, rather than calling a judge to drive out other Israelites, God himself steps in. And he plays the role of judge. And he accomplishes those purposes. He accomplishes the purposes of disciplining Abimelech, punishing Abimelech for what he did to his brothers, and punishing Shechem for their involvement and the other evils that they've committed. God himself steps in, and he is the judge in this chapter. That's powerful to me. That's powerful to me, and this brings us to our our point of application. The first point of application is that God is always at work. God is always at work. I, I can't even tell you how many times I read through this chapter, prayed through this chapter, worked through this chapter, before I understood that God was playing the role of judge. He was orchestrating events very intentionally so that he could discipline the nation, so that he could drive out the evil from within the nation. God is always at work. In your darkest times, people, God is at work behind the scenes. When circumstances are bleak, and scary and you look around in vain for someone to understand to give you a word of advice to know where you are to help you out god is always at work we see in the bible again and again that god is sovereign and that means he rules and reigns over everything he is actively sovereign that means he is actively ruling and reigning over everything I heard an explanation, a description of sovereignty one time that, that said it was kind of like, you know, running Awana games where you've got, you've got kids in a, you know, in a certain square or a circle and they're doing stuff and you're kind of, you know, w- walking around the outside making sure they don't hurt each other. That's not sovereignty. That's, that's, that's reactionary, right? Because you can't read what's in little Billy's mind before he decks Joey. You can't actually be sovereign. You're just reactionary. You might be able to get there and stop it before the, you know, the blow lands, before the fight really breaks out, but you're not actually actively sovereign. The God of the Bible is actually actively sovereign in these situations. From the beginning of this story, it was the Lord who was arranging it. It was He who was in charge. It was He who sent the Spirit to to bring dissension between the two. God was actively at work, not, not reactively at work. He wasn't just doing the best He could with a bad situation. He was on purpose doing this, accomplishing his goodwill. God is at work. He is actually that sovereign. And we see that clearly throughout all of this passage. He's even sovereign over the choices and actions of evil, selfish people. Sometimes it may seem like those evil, selfish people are getting away with it, doesn't it? Often it seems like that. 
You read the news too much, you might get that idea. They do not get away with it. God is actively at work. They are not getting away with it. God is sovereign over them too, though they would never be able to understand it. Take heart, Christian. God is always at work. Application number two. The Lord will rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Israel had never had a king. Israel didn't need a king. Gideon was right back in the end of chapter 8 in 8.23 when, when he said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be your king because the Lord will rule over you. And our problem is that, kinda like Shechem, we often settle for serving unworthy masters rather than serving the one worthy one who is God Himself. We're tempted to bow down to different types of masters. Some are tempted by popularity and the approval of others. They're willing to make compromises, kinda like Shechem did in their Baal worship. But Christian, the Lord will rule over you. Don't serve popularity. Don't serve the opinions of others. Others are tempted to order their their lives under the rule of money or possessions. Some are willing to make ethical compromises for the sake of getting more of those things. And others would never dream of doing that. But if you look at their schedule, you look at how they spend their time, you can see that actually they do serve that. They do care more about that than they do actually about their family, their spouse or their kids or, or even their Lord. That they would devote more of their energy to pursuing those things. The Lord will rule over you. Don't let money or stuff take that position. Others are in danger of being ruled by achievement or pleasure or comfort or security or position. Don't let those things rule over you, Christian. The Lord will rule over you. Third point of application. For those here who are not Christians, who are not yet followers of Jesus, here's here's what God has for you from this passage. Paul, in speaking to the uh, New Testament church at Ephesus, talking about the time in their lives before they were Christians, when they didn't follow Jesus yet either. This is what he says of them and to them. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what life was like under this bramble king, Abimelech. But there's a greater bramble king, isn't there? He's called the prince of the power of the air in this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. He's Satan himself. And we so often submit to him. And, and for those of you who are not yet followers of Christ, that's where you find yourself right now, unknowingly, unwittingly serving the bramble king. But your story doesn't have to end like Shechem's story ended. Listen to how Paul continues in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Don't continue giving your allegiance to the bramble king, the one who's actually the enemy of your soul. Trust in the king of kings for the forgiveness of your sins and he will save your soul from certain and eternal judgment and destruction. Don't wait. You don't know what tomorrow may bring. You don't know what tomorrow may bring. Put your trust in Jesus now. Confess your sins to Jesus now and ask him for forgiveness now and make him, instead of the bramble king, the king of your life. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would bring new life in this room right now to those who need it. I pray that you, in your sovereign will, in your plan, that you would accomplish that. I pray that you would do that. Lord, we know that you are sovereign, and and, and we submit, I submit to your sovereignty, and I rejoice that you are sovereign because you're also good. Lord, as we look at the life of Abimelech and the people of Shechem and all the chaos and the hatred and the murder and the dissension and the evil and the idolatry and everything that went on there, Lord, I see you behind it, ridding Israel of something that should have been gotten rid of a long time ago. I see you as the judge in this passage. I see you as the sovereign one who's, who's ruling, who's reigning, who's accomplishing his good purposes. And Lord, I know that you are still sovereign. I know that you reign and you rule and accomplish your good purposes in my life, in my family's life, and in the life of this church even today. Lord, we rejoice in that, and I look for you. I, I look for those, those places where I can see you at work. And, Lord, I ask that you would continue to work and that you would work in great ways. And I ask that you would work in this church in great ways. Lord, we have prayed for revival. We have sought you. I pray that we would continue to seek you and that you would send revival. I pray, Lord, that, that you would revive our concern for you, revive our hearts for you, that we would be more concerned about you than about absolutely anything else in our lives. Lord, I confess that I am not more concerned about you than absolutely anything. Lord, forgive me. Help me work in my heart and work in our hearts that we may seek you and that we may see you as the righteous and holy and rightful king seated on the throne in heaven. And I pray that you would seat yourself on the thrones of the hearts of people who don't yet know you even this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all and you're dismissed.